understanding of how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the February installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, my name is Jacob, and we've got a great show planned for you today. The Blue Marble Space Institute of Science is a virtual research institute dedicated to interdisciplinary pursuits of the Earth system, space exploration, and the future of humanity. If you'd like to check out more about our institute or listen to uh, previous versions of our podcast, you can go to bmsis.org and bmsis.org slash podcast. And, um, of course, if you're listening to any of our shows, you must respect the laws of your land and be of age to drink alcoholic beverages, although the beverage for today is, I believe, non-alcoholic. So we have a talk for you today by Dr. John Petters, but first Dr. Ravi Kumar Koparapu is going to introduce us to his favorite beverage. Ravi. Thanks, Jacob. So I don't drink alcohol, but I've got a great party punch drink for you, and I got addicted to it, so here it is. The ingredients are cranberry ginger ale, frozen orange pineapple juice, and mango pulp. It's pretty easy. You mix them together and let it froth a little bit and uh, in a punch bowl. And you have to add uh, a double the amount of ginger ale and about a half a cup of mango pulp together with the frozen orange and pineapple juice. And uh, let it chill. And it tastes really, really great. And I promise you, you'll get addicted too. All right. So we'll move on to our speaker today, John Peters. He's currently a um, AAA Science and Technology Fellow, uh, American Ad Association for Advancement of Science at the Department of Energy's Office of Science. John is a trained atmospheric scientist, and he studied atmospheric radiative transfer, boundary layer cloud microphysics, and dynamics, and the interactions among the three. Before this, John received his master's and bachelor's from North Carolina State uh, University and his PhD is from Penn State. A lot of Penn State people are over here. And all of these are in atmospheric science uh, or meteorology. And if he's not working, he'd rather be le learning something new or be outside. And I don't blame him living that long in State College. So for his second year AAAS fellowship, John has been working on the use and management of digital data within uh, scientific research through both interagency and internal working groups. He has also looked at carbon capture technology and policy and does whatever else the director asks. John, I, today he's going to discuss some of the things he learned uh, working in the federal government. And actually, I'm particularly interested in uh, how, uh, regarding the science policy and how uh, our scientists are going to get involved in these science policy discussions. And he'll also discuss thoughts on climate change communication and student innovation. So, John. So, thanks for that great introduction, Ravi. I appreciate it. The fellowship program that I'm in now has been around for uh, 40 years. Uh, actually, this is the 40th anniversary to uh, this year. And the, the whole purpose of the fellowship program is to, to get scientists and engineers to participate in and contribute to federal policy work. And in, in the process, while they're contributing their uh, analytical skills and knowledge to, to learn firsthand about intersection between science and policy. So if there's two kind of spectrums, I, I tend to think of it as, as, as science for policy 
and then policy that influences science. And there's many different intersections that maybe could go through a continuum across that. But science for policy could be something like, say, science diplomacy, where scientists actually working across uh, international boundaries can, can help to foment better international relations. Uh, could be an example. Uh, the other side would be policy influencing science, which is probably more probably more what I'm uh, the position that I'm in is more like being that the Office of Science is a funding agency, so it's doling out money and resources for uh, for advancing science and scientific research. So that's that's probably more on the side I'm on. But there's a, a wide variety of things that people are doing in this fellowship program. You know, Chris, I'll just tell you a little bit about what I've been doing. Policy influencing science. Well, there's an infinite, virtually limitless amount of things that we could study and, and investigate in the world and in the universe. We can only do so much. We have limited resources, limited time. So what do we do? I think this is the basic question that any funding agency is trying to answer. Where do you put the money? How do you double it out so that science uh, advances in the, in the fastest, most efficient way? So important disclaimer, I'm not a government representative. I don't work for the federal government. I'm a program participant. The Department of Energy probably would be very unhappy if I didn't say that because I'm not a government rep. I can't sign off on stuff. Just an important thing to keep in mind. And I may have to be a little fuzzy on some of the things I, I've, I've been doing because it's not been properly vetted through the government, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, just an important thing to say. So in my particular position, I'm working in the Department of Energy's Office of Science in the Office of the Director. Uh, this position, when I had this opportunity, was quite a wild card position. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do in this office. Uh, the director of the Office of Science oversees $5 billion of scientific research, specifically in physical science fields. About 50% of the U.S. government's investments in physical science research goes through the office that I work in. Uh, so that'd be stuff like all the national labs. A lot of the national labs funding goes through Office of Science, all the accelerators, all the synchrotrons, all kinds of research at the universities, climate research, theoretical high physics, high energy physics, nuclear physics, all kinds of stuff. Cosmology, astrobiology. Not astrobiology, I shouldn't say. Astronomy, cosmology. So it's going to be, it's going to be quite interesting thing, working in this particular office. Uh, climate science, meteorology, environmental sciences is a small part of what's funded, but it's far, far larger, far wider than my expertise, of course. And it, it took me a little a little while to figure out what my place in this office was going to be after I got into it. How can you really be a, a serious asset to a person who has at his fingertips experts in all fields of physical science? You know, if, if Bill Brinkman, who's the director of the office, wants to ask uh, somebody about uh, climate science, something regarding climate modeling, or even in my expertise more in, in small-scale atmospheric modeling, he can go ask any number of experts <laughs> working in the national labs or across the universities, and they'll, be, they'll all be very happy to give them the time of day. So how do I help out a guy like this? It's been, uh, it's been quite interesting. I, I do whatever I'm asked to do. Uh, one thing I've been asked to do many, on many occasions is maybe a little more banal. It's, it's simply preparing presentations, getting presentation material together for the director as he, as he moves around. He's currently in Louisiana at LSU right now, giving a nice uh, talk. I guess he, he did it this morning that I helped to get together. Got involved in, in carbon capture and sequestration, uh, looking at the economics, some of the economics of this, and uh, technology issues in this, because there is this technology team that was working across the department that the Office of Science has some investment in, and I just got kind of thrown into it. I was like, John, would you be interested in getting involved in this technology team? I'm like, well, sure, whatever. You know, I know a little bit about thermodynamics. I guess I can model my way through, and and talking to these people about you know, process engineering and and 
dollars per ton of carbon dioxide captured and all these different kinds of engineering and process techniques. It's fascinating, but a little bit outside of my expertise. But, uh, and I got some, some opportunity to use some of my experience from, from my, my personal science knowledge every now and again, but not so much. But there's a few things I learned through this process, uh, you know, getting thrown into a, a, a very different organization than one uh, that I was working in before in the university. A couple of important things I learned about, well, specifically the Department of Energy, but I think this is true for any government agency, is they all have specific missions. Um, and it's very important to keep that in mind. So the Department of Energy is the Department of Energy. It has a mission. You can go read the mission on the website. And really anything that it does Somehow it has to be tied to that mission. This may sound uh, simplistic, but people often go back and say, does this, help, uh, does this help the department accomplish its mission? I imagine that the folks at NASA are doing the exact same thing whenever they're deciding, are we going to fund uh, Earth-observing uh, satellite platforms? How is it accomplishing the mission that NASA has set out to do by the federal government? The thing is, if you don't do what's in your mission, people in Congress can get kind of unhappy. <laughs> you don't want to make the people in Congress unhappy. They might think about ways to uh, make, make it a little harder for you to, do, uh, to accomplish your mission in the near future, shall we say. Uh, the department I'm in is a, is a very bureaucratic, hierarchical organization. Again, very different than academia and, and other nonprofit uh, uh, organizations, I think. One of the first things I did working in this carbon capture part was... Uh, trying to get a hold of somebody in a different, uh, one of the national labs who worked on a report that I thought sounded really interesting. Uh, it was talking about economics and, and, and how they tried to figure out how much it costs to capture a, a ton of carbon dioxide from a, from a coal-fired power plant. Well, you know, in, in, in academia, if you need a report, you want to talk to somebody, you talk to the expert, you talk to the person who, who made the report. That's where you go, of course. I did this, uh, somebody out in Pittsburgh, and, and quickly got back an email from their supervisor saying, you should go talk to this guy in this other office over here. So this is the way the whole system works. You know, you're, you work in a specific office and you report to your supervisor. And if you're going to do anything apart from that, that's a little different. Generally, you have to get vetted by somebody in, somebody higher up. It says, you know, well, that is how you should, that's how you should be allocating your time. You have these duties, and I will allow you, or I suggest that you should now allocate some of your time to doing, the, doing these duties. It's really different than, than working in, in academia, where you just kind of do whatever you want. And like, oh, I'm going to pursue this interesting research. It sounds interesting. And as long as you get something produced off the, for the grant, generally everybody's kind of happy. Well, here, if you, if you step on other people's toes in, in the department somewhere, you, you think you're doing some good, but somebody else really has the duty for that work, and they think you're, you're uh, stepping on their turf, well, then you can cause a lot of ruffled feathers. And, and nobody really likes that. It, it, it causes a lot of consternation both for your office and, 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 and for the other people. So working in this environment has been, it's been quite challenging to figure out how to advance things. How can I influence the way things are done? When you always have to work through these proper channels and say to yourself, okay, I think I have a really good idea, but if I just throw this really good idea out, I might just make a whole lot of people really mad, piss off a bunch of people, as opposed to finding ways to incorporate your thoughts into a processes that are already happening so that people are like, yeah, that is a good idea. Well, let's go talk to my, let's go talk to the deputy director about that. And then let's go talk to the director about that. And then you get approval up and down the chain of, of command. It's very strange. It, I've gotten kind of used to it. it it's taken a while, but uh, it's very different. 
I mean, uh, the, one of the specific things that I was interested in in scientific research before I even got to and do this fellowship and that I've been involved in uh, has been regarding uh, data management, digital data management, as Robbie had mentioned. Uh, Jacob probably remembers me bitching at one point or another about the computer model RAMS that I used as a graduate student that had no documentation in it, and I wasted many hours, or felt like I wasted many hours trying to get the research done. That if the people who had developed the code had just just written down what they meant to do with these meaningless variable names, I could have gotten made a lot more progress. And I feel like I'm not the only person who thinks this way. So I thought, well, hey, if I'm working in the director's office, in the Office of Science, which funds a bunch of research, maybe I can change something about this. Uh, my general silly idea was, well, we'll just say for anybody who writes a grant that maybe you have to somehow show that you documented, documented the, the, the data products that you uh, developed. If you had a data set, you somehow made it easier for somebody else to pick it up or software or whatever. I thought this is, this is a nice, simple idea. Well, it's, it's a naive idea, and I learned that it's, that doesn't really, it wouldn't really work the way I expected. But I did find out that there have been folks working in the government and also in my department in particular uh, working on similar issues. There's actually, you can Google it if you wanted to, there's actually a, a bill that's now law from 2010 called the, I, I, love, I love the government. They keep me entertained all the time. Uh, the America Creating Opportunities Meaningfully Promote Excellence in Technology, Education, and Science Reauthorization Act, or America Competes. I like this. This is good. One part of this act is actually saying that there should be a group formed to look at public access to the results of federally funded research. And presumably, I mean, there's some other things, there's some other drivers in moving parts in this kind of idea, but the basic principle is, is that we pay taxes, us citizens all pay taxes, and to the federal government, who then puts out uh, all this money for research, well then, if we want to look at the outputs of this research, then we should be able to do it. Simple principle. You can imagine this might have something to have implications on the, the academic publishing industry, potentially. Um, something I'm not going to talk about so much here. But uh, the other thing I was interested in, though, is that uh, this also has implications for, for other outputs, research outputs, not just publications, but uh, data, uh, software, tools that have been developed. And it just so happened that there were some uh, working groups in the Office of Science working on these kind of uh, issues um, regarding data management within science research. And also looking at, uh, there's other other issues in data, I'm sure, uh, at one point or another, some of you guys have heard the big data term thrown around. It's become a very uh, in thing to talk about these days. There are certainly people in the government who are interested in looking at ways to better use data for spurring innovation across the country, better ways to store and manipulate data for uh, scientific discovery. Uh, there are all kinds of options. So so I, I did learn working groups and I wanted to get involved. I, I think it's a, this is a very worthwhile thing to, to be concerned with. I think it's, this it's scientific progress is going to be somewhat hampered if data management isn't done better. All, everything's online. Everything's digital already. So uh, it'll just make things faster and easier, if, if easier for all of us involved if, if we can do this, manage the data and think about it a little bit more carefully. So I got involved in this in this working group and it, it, it's amazing the number of people you have to talk to to get things 
things moved ahead uh, to make sure everybody's on board. I heard, I've heard, I've learned nice terms like capacity building, consensus building. It's having to talk to people all within the office of science, program managers, talking to the deputy director, uh, talking to other folks on, on the deputy director staff, discussing with many scientists outside of uh, you know the scientists who are funded by the office of science, uh, getting their views on on how data might be managed or could be managed. There are other federal agencies that are looking at these kind of issues, and so we talked. We talked to representatives from the other agencies. It, it ends up being a lot of meetings, <laughs> lots of lots of discussions, and lots of uh, lots of planning. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a whole a whole hell of a lot about how processes and policies are made in the government to, to deal with this kind of issues. I mean, we were talking about we changed the way data management is. is if we had, there's some sort of statement for talking about how data management is going to, going to be done in our office, which is funding $5 billion of research, well, that affects quite a few people. And so it better be done carefully or you'll cause a firestorm. Progress has been really slow, but... Uh, it seems like we'll actually have something come out, a statement on this actually come out, uh, maybe before my fellowship year is out. And it'll actually, so I actually have made, you know, played a part, a role in this, and uh, we'll actually see that I actually uh, uh, accomplished something that hopefully will be worthwhile and help out, uh, help out science as it, as it progresses along. <clears throat> so I certainly can talk a little bit more about what I learned in the government, but uh, other things as much as anybody would like to talk about, asked about. I thought I'd just talk a little bit also about um, climate change and uh, climate change communication and, and also something about the government's role in this as well. Certainly in, in our discussions at, at Penn State and, and at Santa Cruz, certainly a lot, we talk a lot about how we might change the messaging for climate change and, and get out the importance that we need to do something about this and, and affect, uh, get some real action moving as opposed to the gridlock that we see. Well, one thing you won't see very much, at least even at this point. Maybe this changes in the second term. I don't know. As the representatives from the U.S. government saying very much about this. People in the government I find to be generally risk adverse, I think is a good term. Want to stay out of the limelight. Unless everybody agrees that it's good to be in the limelight and pushing a certain agenda, it's a unified choice. People want to stay. Don't You don't want to peek your head up in case you get the wrong attention. And I think definitely in the last couple of years, climate change has been an issue like this, where people haven't been interested in talking about it, uh, lest they lest they get the incur the wrath of of certain folks. So uh, I have happened to heard many talks, and 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 at least on the side, heard a lot about uh, climate change communication ideas. And so I thought I thought you guys might be interested in hearing a little bit about about some of the things I learned, and hopefully it's not repetitive to what you already know. One thing it's what's interesting it's, it's kind of a slightly tangent but whenever wherever you are in the government you're an expert in something and, it, and you may not expect that you're the expert in it but in a room somebody is the expert on some topic and you may be end up being that person even if you're not uh, you have no very little understanding of it and everybody will look to you to have have the have the answers but I think I think also this points towards a towards an issue where Scientists, I think, working working in policy, I think, uh, trying to think about policy changes and how we might, all right, we have all the science knowledge, like on climate change, for example, and we now should think about, all right, we know that there's an issue, and we need to find some way to, to address this issue. And I think that this can, can be a problem where you have folks working outside their expertise, 
trying to, all right, so if I have some knowledge about radiative transfer and, and cloud physics and stuff, and I suddenly start talking to somebody about, all right, well, look, climate change is an issue. We need to work on these economic policies. I think I have, a, I think I have the right economic policies. You kind of bring into question credibility as uh, in your field as you're stepping outside of your field. And this can cause trouble not just for economics, you know, if you're trying to foment some certain, a certain economics policy, but then people call on the credibility, question your credibility as to, in the expertise that you have. But I think... What, the reason I bring this up in regards to climate change communication is that I think a lot of scientists in general, not just on climate change, don't necessarily pay attention to the research that's available in fields that they're not experts in. I think everybody does this. Actually, I shouldn't just, uh, shouldn't just say this on scientists. Uh, everybody has a tendency to think, well, if I just kind of sort of think about this over here, I could kind of reason out what's going on. And I think certainly communication is one of these things that scientists specifically do. There's a lot of good research on communication uh, and, and science research on, on, on communication and how to uh, communicate, communicate to people effectively and try and get your message across. And uh, you may, you guys may well have seen articles by Chris Mooney talking about how sometimes folks who are given more facts, if they disagree with a premise, getting more facts will only make them less likely to agree with the premise. I think there are a lot of scientists out there who think that if we can only educate the folks on, on, on our subjects, you know, climate change was one example, let's say genetically modified foods or, or whatever it would have you, that if we can just educate people, it'll you know, pave the way for everybody understanding things the way I'd want. And it seems like research has borne out that this is, simply isn't the case. You have to speak to the people's core values in some way. So regardless of climate change, I have a couple, there's a couple of good lectures I can point to. There's one specific I saw at the National Academies I can point to that talked a lot about this. Regardless of climate change, there's this, uh, the Yale Climate Communication Project. I said Dr. Lee Zerowitz, I believe is his name, came up with this concept of, uh, he did a very large uh, survey. Of, of people's opinions and attitudes toward climate uh, across the country. I, I think it's a couple thousand people, maybe it's a thousand people. And ended up finding a, finding a, reasonable, uh, a reasonable way to split the folks was into six different categories. And it's called the Six Americas Report. I'm sure you could find it. And basically, I think the main takeaway message from how he binned the folks regards with their attitude to climate change, you have two ends. You've got the alarmist folks who are already like very convinced climate change is a serious issue and we need to do something about it yesterday. And they're all ready to help. They're all ready to actually uh, motivate their fellow citizens, people in their country areas and in their local governments. We need to do something now. Then you have on the other side the people who think that climate change is a big hoax and scientists have some sort of uh, reasons to push this agenda that climate's an issue and climate's always been changing and there's nothing to worry about. And these folks on that end actually tend to be quite educated about the subject. They're not uh, uneducated folks and they do know a lot, of, a lot of stuff. But those folks particularly, I think it was, uh, not the, I forget what the phrase was, there's six different adjectives, I forget what it's called, but th those folks, there may be like 10% of the population. What the folks at Yale are kind of arguing is that the way you maybe can reach those guys, reach those folks on, on climate is not by talking about big issues regarding, uh, you know, the fate of the planet and, and worrying about ecosystems and whatnot. But maybe you could reach them with things like talking about energy efficiency, uh, you know, finding ways to get, have more energy efficient appliances, better mileage in cars. That could make a, an impact. But trying to talk to folks like that who have a certain set of values about we need to save the planet is just not going to pan out.
And then there's this whole group of people in the middle who really would be willing to hear more about what's going on. Some of them may be more doubtful and some may be more concerned than others. If they're open to hearing more about what the issues are and what could be done. And those are the folks maybe that should be more, more also more focused on. So the folks in the, the end, the 10% who are really, this is a hoax and this is all crap, we're not, we don't need to worry about this. If it's just 10% of the population, you have a very large, potentially a very large swath of folks you actually maybe could convince with some with some carefully targeted messages. It's really interesting a concept, I think. And, you know, and you guys have online presences and whatnot, so I'm sure you've seen plenty of people trolling all, all kinds of climate change articles, talking about you know, put adding a bunch of uh, unhelpful comments into articles regarding climate change, and, and maybe it's better just to ignore all these people and, and focus on the folks who who may be convinced. Uh, another guy, another guy I heard from here, uh, Ed Maybach. He's a professor at George Mason. Kind of going along these lines, uh, how to communicate to to folks about climate change. He he uses a, a simple phrase, and he repeated it often in his talk, which I liked. The phrase is clear, simple messages from a variety of trusted sources. And he said this several times. Apparently, uh, Mr. Maybach was involved in in uh, developing campaigns for educating folks about the dangers of high blood pressure many years ago. And so finding clear messages that can reach people and have them come from places, from organizations, where people have confidence in those organizations can have an impact. So in this case, maybe it's professional organizations. Maybe it's the American Geophysical Union. Uh, maybe it's the American Meteorological Society. It's the government in some way. Uh, people still do have some reasonable you know, trust of the government as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is take on messages. That, uh, there's a lot of information out there about how to communicate these kind of uh, issues to people outside of academia. And it's important for scientists to be mindful of this, to remember that there are hardworking folks uh, looking at how best to do this communication. So I talked to Jacob, we talked many years ago about getting involved with marketing folks. You know, marketing people have, under, have knowledge of how to convince people of things. So, but just having the scientists do it themselves, it's, it's, uh, it's a real uphill battle. So uh, I thought that I certainly think this is interesting stuff. There are some, there are some uh, efforts I'm aware of in the government to kind of look at getting a government message. I, I don't know, honestly, where the, where those have bled as of yet. Finally, just kind of as an aside, I, you know, one of these nice things about being in this fellowship program is the other fellows who are doing all kinds of interesting and exciting things across the uh, government. And, uh, and they're all really, you know, uh, motivated folks. They all have a, a lot of things that they're trying to do, trying to accomplish. And I had an opportunity to work with them, a group of these fellows, on this concept called student-led innovation. Uh, this is just really just an aside. But uh, it's, a, it's an interesting concept to, to, to give students the opportunities and resources of available to take some of their creative ideas and run with them before they get all jaded as older as older folks. And it's a really interesting concept. I, I don't know whether there's any research that shows that this is an effective way to educate folks and to have benefits to society, but I think it's certainly an interesting approach. And there, there certainly is no shortage of these kind of ideas in, the, uh, in Washington. There's all kinds of ideas thrown around about ways to do this and ways to do that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been really fascinating. So um, I'm going to stop there. I mean, I'm happy to answer questions. I'm sure I, I could have talked for longer, but I'd rather, you know, if you guys have questions that I can answer that I don't feel like I'm betraying the government. That would be, uh, <laughs> be great. Right. Well, thanks, John. That, that was excellent. 
Well, I have one question to start things off. Um, you know, as scientists, the main deliverable of what we do is papers. You know, we go to conferences, but mainly we write papers, publish them in journals. And, you know, there's the usual ways that we try to disseminate the papers and get them a little bit more attention from other scientists and maybe some press attention. I mean, aside from the things we usually do, is there any, like, advice, like a couple of, of points of advice you could maybe give for how scientists, maybe climate scientists from your perspective, could better market or just better share their work and the works of their colleagues to better inform government agencies? There's a, a division that funds climate research. Uh, and all the research that they, they certainly know all those PIs. They know all those. I'm talking about research that's, that, that's outside of those realms, outside of what's being um, there's, it's certainly reaching out to the program, relevant program people about this being done is uh, certainly a reasonable thing to do. So, you know, I'm trying to like my own personal. I'll think of my own personal research, doing simulations of cloud dynamics and, and what. It's interested in, in trying to develop a relationship and say that somebody was somebody should be interested in the research that I'm doing, and not, knowing what I know now in the government, what I would probably do is 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 try and get a hold of those the, those folks who are most relevant in the agency. Um, so there's folks, there's an NSF, there's an atmospheric and, uh, well, it's the geosciences directorate. And then there's an atmospheric initiating section of that. So I would, I would probably like try and try and come to try and talk to those guys. If you can get their attention, that's always a, you know, a certainly a limiting factor in DC is getting folks attention. Um, <laughs> something that something that the CEO of AAA said is as soon as he became a person who was in charge of budgets, suddenly everybody was his best friend. <laughs> um, but uh, trying to trying to get their attention and say, well, hey, this is what I'm this is what I'm interested. Uh, this is the kind of work I'm doing, and I think that is this could be of interest and of of service to the mission that your that your program is working under. I think that's you know, that's an important important thing whenever you're trying to match up what you're doing with a certain funding agency and the government. And I think the government, and of course, in any other foundation, I think it'd be like, well, our, my, my nonprofit foundation, I've got, you know, or I've got, I've got a billion dollars because I, I made it rich on the stock market. I have a certain vision. And if I can find folks who are going to help advance that vision, then I'm excited. But uh, so I think I think the simplest thing to do to get in to talk to, to talk to talk to agencies would be to um, certainly just get a hold of them through through email or calling. Other ways would be well, I think email is a good way to advance. Like <clears throat> if you've already got you've got developed a web presence, you have other uh, giving out publications. I think would be an entirely reasonable thing. Like hey, I, I I did this research and I think this would be relevant to what y'all are doing and. Um, I, I think that there could be some good uh, 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 good reasons to make a connection. I think that folks are always open to hearing these things. Um, just have to keep in mind that the, the folks who are doing this are always incredibly busy at the same time. I hope that's helpful. Yes, that, that, thank you. Um, Zach, you had a question? Yeah, uh, I'm just curious if, and I realize the, the question might be a little bit touchy to answer, but uh, uh, do you think that there are any particular... Uh, or systemic blind spots in conducting, say, um, atmospheric or climate change research that really can only be solved through legislative deliberation and action uh, rather than a change in executive power or 
in internal policy memos. And I'm speaking, I guess, in particular to research conducted at government institutions. Let me think. There, I, there, 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 well, I can think of one. I, I can think of one. Well, it, where you, where you have, where you, where you have the issues, I think, in, in typical problems with, with trying to cover all of the, all of the area within climate research. I think it's, this is going to be true, I think, for a lot of things, a lot of issues that intersect agencies. But climate research, so you may be aware of the U.S. GCRP, the U.S. Global Change Research Program. Um, in this, it's an interagency program uh, ran through a national coordinating office, and it's got 14 agencies. So there's 14 agencies that have an interest in climate, anthropogenic climate change or climate change in general and how it might influence um, them uh, dealing their, dealing their missions. So the Department of Energy may have a concern about uh, whether or not uh, there's going to be enough water for running coal-fired power plants, uh, whether the water is going to be moving around. That might be one example. So I guess the, I, not to try and go too far away from your question, but so where you have issues is, is where you, you have these two agencies now need to work together to advance uh, advanced things. Interagency work has, there are some particular issues with that. Um, one agency's got one mission and one agency's got another mission. And there may be some intersections, but when they're doing work, they're doing work that advances their missions. So you had this, so the government ends up being kind of compartmentalized this way sometimes. And there are, there are mechanisms to try and make things work a little smoother, but would, would there be a serious benefit from, uh, <clears throat> from, from the government having a, we're going to plunk down $100 million to, to, to look at these particular issues in climate research? Yes, I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine also causing trouble because the other folks who are already working somewhat in these areas would not be so happy. Generally, I think when, things, when you have to do things that are working across agencies, the best term I've used that seems most effective to me is a concept called formation flying. So my agency is working on these parts, these components of, say, climate change. We're, we're trying to answer this particular problem in science. We can answer these aspects, and the other, you, you agency B can answer these aspects, and we'll kind of keep collaborating, keep coordinating, and, and make things worse work. But um, <clears throat> it, it certainly is an issue. And... Uh, I think uh, my understanding from the last administration, uh, from when Bush was in charge, was actually there was a lot of there's quite a bit of money put into so, so the money sometimes in the budgets is allocated towards certain activities. I think it's actually exactly where you're kind of going, and so there there could be, you know, I don't have the whole view. I guess is what I have to end up saying, but there are people trying their best to make sure all the important avenues are covered. Um, but they may also be, you know, I guess there's another, another thing I've heard often said is that in the government, people like to say a lot, the smartest people are working not in the government. The smartest people are always working for some other organization. So certainly there's other people like you guys are thinking about things in climate regarding climate that are not being thought about by other folks. Uh, Grasshopper typed in a question. I'll just read it then. For those scientists interested in getting some science policy experience under their belts, how did you find the application process with the AAAS? Did you apply to other programs such as NAS or uh, Mirzian? Did you have any contacts first or second hand who helped along the way? 
grasshopper. I'd be happy to talk to you all about the fellowship process, uh, application process. I've tried to help with some other folks out with it. Um, I did not look at other programs, so there are plenty of others. Uh, I think it's one question you have to ask yourself at the very beginning is how long you think you'd like to, to do, spend spend time learning about policy. Uh, that's an important question because there's some, there's, I know the AMS has a summer policy program where they bring folks, scientists and graduate students in just for one week. So you get a one-week blitz about working the policy. Um, I found the AAAS application process to be rather rigorous. Uh, they, they really do want to see that the scientists who, scientists who come to D.C., uh, they don't want, I think, well, okay, just me talking, of course. I'm not, I, I can't do the application process. But uh, my, my understanding is that they really like to have people who uh, can show, have, have, have evidence that they can communicate effectively to people outside of their field. So you, you can you so if me doing meteorology and cloud physics, I, I can talk to other people without using jargony words like entrainment and uh, you know, scattering and hydrometeors and all that stuff, uh, and and be able to show uh, communicate big picture, yeah, you know, have, have larger uh, have a larger wider view uh, of what's going on. Um, I, I think that you know as long as you can do that and it, it show interest in, in working outside of your field. And that you have a good record working in your field, you end up being a pretty good candidate. I'm certainly happy to talk more about that and, and get advice. I, I found out about, I, I really got into really thinking seriously about this when I, I, when I was in Santa Cruz and I was doing a little volunteer work for the Environmental Defense Fund. I was just trying to see a little bit about working for a nonprofit. And I emailed one of the physical scientists, environmental scientists, environmental scientists, there and she said, "Well, if you're interested in getting into policy work, you might want to consider this fellowship process program." So, but there's plenty of other ones. Uh, the Merzan is a shorter one. I think it's six weeks or three months. Three months. There's one in California for the, working in the California state legislature. There are a lot of options. Certainly, I'm certainly happy to talk more about it. All right, thanks, John. Does anyone have any uh, final burning questions? Can I ask a very specific question as compared to a lot of the general stuff? Yes. You had mentioned carbon sequestration early on as one of the things you've been working on. Has something called biochar showed up in your deliberations at all? I'm aware of it. I think that's really not something we talked about very much. Is this the idea of, of uh, binding the carbon dioxide uh, to like a, a biological compound and then storing it underground? Is that the concept? Or do I have the right one? It's related to basically it's making charcoal, but there's a way you can tweak the reaction kinetics such that you actually get energy out in the process. So in theory, at least it doesn't cost you anything to make the stuff. A couple of friends of mine from the Hertz Foundation have been working on this lately, so I was I, I was wondering if they'd actually gotten any significant coverage. You know, I, I've definitely heard biochar uh, out there. Is is I, I've heard the term. I guess we just haven't talked about it very much. A lot a lot of the focus has been on. Um, uh, trying to find the right, uh, right, the right catalysts and the right, uh, the right ways to separate out the carbon dioxide. Um, I think this is. <clears throat> I, want to, I want to say when I hear the biochar thing, I feel like it's more like along the lines of mineralization, uh, and well, so the idea that to bind the carbon dioxide to something else that you can then shovel, sh shove somewhere. I'll have to look into it more carefully, but I, I know one issue that people people talk about using uh, um, using making like calcium carbonate, for example, uh, something like that. And one of the limestone answers, would be the well, limestone would be the stablest way to hold carbon. 
I think I think one of the issues they have with this is simply the scale of of how much you make and how you transport it. So we're talking about I, I think a metric ton of carbon dioxide comes out every you know or more than several metric tons come out of a, a power stack every minute. I mean, it's all it's it's the the. I probably have my numbers incorrectly, but the scale is staggering. So if you do the mineralization route, you have you have uh, a lot of limestone to move around, or or something else. And I think that's one of the issues with 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 the mineralization route. And I'm not saying that, that the, when you talk about biochar, it's the same thing. But um, that, I, I think the, the the one of the main things I learned just kind of going along the lines of this is that in carbon capture, you can for 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 gas separations, you can show a lot of things that work nicely in a lab, and then when you try and scale them up to a power plant size you have a whole lot of issues. <laughs> this is definitely not a small problem. That much is certain. Thank you. No. This, people are, still, are st- certainly still working on it. Um, there has to be some way to make it cheaper and thermodynamically feasible. I think that's, you know, that's one of the main issues. Is that it takes a lot of energy out of the power plant to do the gas separation and the compression and the storage, and that makes it expensive. It's a lot cheaper not to do anything. <laughs> Well, thanks, John. This has been a great conversation. I think we all learned a lot. So um, thank you very much for joining us. Listeners, tune in next month to hear our next installment of Beer with uh, Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Thanks for joining us. See everyone. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science and with it... We can improve our lives.